Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science, as well as its impact on society. Well, today on Exploration, we're very privileged to have two very special guests talking about two very important issues. The first author is Professor Charles Seif, professor of journalism at NYU, who's written a book about fusion power. Everyone talks about energy. Where are we going to get energy to fuel civilization into the next decades? Well, hopefully, solar power and wind power and renewable technology will kick in. But yeah, they're still several years away. But in a 10-year time frame, perhaps fusion power becomes a possibility. In other words, the French are building the ITER fusion reactor in southern France. It's due to be christened around 2019. And if, and this is a huge if, if it works, then we may get unlimited energy from seawater. That's right, from seawater, because that's the basic fuel for fusion power. In other words, hydrogen from ordinary seawater can be extracted and then burned in a fusion reactor. So Professor Seif will talk about energy from a bottle, a bottle of water. And then in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about evolution. You know, it never ceases to surprise me that some people are, well, offended if you say that humans descended from an ape-like creature. Wow. In the second half of exploration, you can forget about ape-like creatures. We're talking about fish. That's right. Let's go all the way back. Fish. We're talking about what humans look like now hundreds of millions of years ago. We think that life originally started in the oceans as single-celled organisms, but they in turn gave birth to multiple-celled organisms and worms. Worms eventually became fish, and that's what we'll talk about today. Fish in turn became amphibians like frogs and salamanders. These amphibians eventually became reptiles and dinosaurs, and we're descended from mammals, which is a split-off from the reptiles. So, in other words, if you take a look at the long sequence of life on the Earth, yes, indeed, you can talk about your inner fish, which is what we'll talk about with Dr. Neil Shubin. So, once again, fusion power in the first part of exploration, and then evolution in the second. Uh, Professor Seif, um, you're a journalist. However, you've written about cosmology, and now you've written a new book called Sun in a Bottle, The Strange History of Fusion and the Science of Wishful Thinking. So how did you, as a journalist, get interested in things that most journalists avoid, like the plague? Well, I have to say I'm really a physics geek at heart. Um, back before I became a journalist, I studied physics and mathematics, and it was only fairly late in my education that I decided that I was more suited to writing than I was to actually performing uh, uh, scientific work. Mm -hmm. So even at the very beginning of my career, uh, I was uh, interested in writing about physics because that's what I loved. And so um, I, my career has been covering physics uh, for a decade and change. And uh, from the very beginning of the time that I was writing, uh, among my first pieces was a large piece about uh, fusion. And uh, coming from the, the physics point of view, I, I thought of this wonderful 
uh, thing which would solve the world's energy crises. And as a journalist approaching it, I saw that it was a little bit more complex than I, I had initially expected with my physics goggles on. Okay, well, let's just jump right into your book. Uh, your book starts out at some of the hairiest days of the Cold War. In 1945, the United States drops a fission bomb on Hiroshima and another fission bomb on Nagasaki based on uranium and plutonium. But then in the 1950s, uh, a new race emerges, not with uranium and plutonium, but with the super, the hydrogen bomb. So explain to us what is the difference between the fission bombs that were dropped on Japan and the super, the hydrogen bomb based on fusion? Well, fission and fusion are two sides of the same coin. In some sense, uh, every atom wants to be iron. It has iron envy. So things which are heavier than iron, like uranium and plutonium, want to split apart in the same sense that a ball wants to roll down a hill. And in the process of splitting apart, they release energy. Fusion, on the other hand, takes light elements. Light elements, on some, in some sense, want to stick together and get heavier, getting closer to iron. Uh, it turns out that the fusion end of the reaction is more energetic per atom than fusion uh, than fission. That is, uh, breaking apart atoms gives you a lot of energy, but fusion, uh, sticking them together, gives you a lot, lot more. So, at the end of the Manhattan Project, um, when the project ended. Um, they, the United States had a bomb that used fission to power it. Uh, in its simplest form, basically all it did was take two hunks of uranium, stick them together, and wham, you get an explosion. Um, so it was easy to do once you got the uranium material uh, to set off the reaction. Uh, Edward Teller, a physicist at the Manhattan Project, uh, was uh, very strongly in favor of using the other side of the coin, fusion, uh, because he realized that it would lead to a weapon of unlimited power, and he called it the super. And the idea basically was to use an explosion, a nuclear uh, a fission explosion, to set off a fusion explosion, which was much, much, much greater. And Teller was right. Um, the weapon that he eventually created was vastly more powerful than even what obliterated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. To give you a sense of scale, uh, Hiroshima was about a 14-kiloton explosion, the equivalent of 14,000 tons of TNT exploding in the same place at the same time. The first full fusion test, called Ivy Mike, um, uh, was 10 megatons, 10 million tons, almost 1,000 times larger than uh, Hiroshima. It evaporated the island it was on. And uh, that was just the beginning. In theory, you can make a fusion bomb as large as you want. Um, the biggest ever detonated was the Russian Tsar Bomba, which was more than 50 megatons of TNT. And uh, after a certain point, it's, it's pointless to get larger because you just wind up uh, lifting a larger and larger column of atmosphere into uh, into space, so it doesn't do that much more damage. Uh, so. Uh, even though it promised unlimited power, unless you wanted to destroy the Earth, it wasn't that much more effective uh, at uh, doing damage than a a fission bomb. Uh, But at the same time, um, the Cold War was getting hot. The Russians had detonated their first nuclear weapon uh, way before 
Americans thought they could get it, uh, thanks in part to a spy operation uh, that penetrated Los Alamos. Uh, so a panicked America realized, uh, well, we have to get ahead of the Russians and uh, keep them keep nuclear supremacy. So they turned to Edward Teller's idea of a super bomb as a way of staying ahead of the Russian nuclear weapon industry. And as we know, uh, the Russians caught up very, very quickly, and it turned into a nuclear stalemate where each side had so many weapons in their arsenal that they could destroy the world many times over. And I should also point out that when I was in high school, uh, Edward Teller was actually my advisor, and he actually sort of guided my career in, in the early years uh, when I was at Harvard. However, moving on now, uh, we have the Cold War in full swing, and people are now used to the idea that there is a bomb a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bomb. But other people have said, well, look at Mother Nature. Mother Nature uses fusion to light up the heavens. So now explain to us how Mother Nature uses the process of fusion, not fission, to light up the universe. Yes, it's, it's, fusion is responsible for all life on Earth. Um, the sun is essentially a big ball of hydrogen. It's hydrogen gas, uh, and when it was coalescing, uh, it was compressing itself under its own gravity. And collapsing, compressing objects get hot in general. And so you've got this ball of hydrogen that got hot and dense, hotter and denser. And eventually it got so hot and so dense that the hydrogen, uh, moving extremely fast because of the energy uh, of the temperature, the, the, the high temperatures involved, started slamming into each other with enough force to cause fusion reactions. So once you get a big ball of gas large enough uh, to collapse under its own gravity and heat each other, heat everything up uh, high enough, you get a fusion reaction. And the fusion reaction is what makes the sun shine. Uh, these hydrogens getting converted eventually into helium release energy, and that energy shines out in all directions. That's what makes stars shine. But it's, this reaction is extraordinarily difficult to get going. You need such an enormous ball of hydrogen um, to kickstart that fusion reaction uh, that it, it, it's hard to do. Um, even a mass of hydrogen the size of Jupiter, Jupiter is almost like a star. The problem is it's not large enough to get so hot that you start that fusion reaction in its belly. So Jupiter is, in, in essence, everything that a star has except just that extra gravitational oomph to get it hot enough and tight enough to ignite. And in fact, in the movie 2010, Arthur C. Clarke talks about uh, aliens igniting Jupiter, so our solar system becomes a double star system. However, Jupiter would have to be about 10 times bigger uh, at minimum in order to get uh, ignition. Now, let's talk about the promise, the promise of fusion. Why has fusion um, hypnotized whole generations of inventors and quacks and top physicists? What is the promise of fusion? Why is there so much interest in it? Why have so many charlatans jumped into the game? Imagine if you had a sun on your desktop that in a little bottle you had a fusion reaction going. If you could get this, if you could have something like this, you basically have an unlimited source of energy. Um, hydrogen is abundant. It's the most abundant element in the universe. It's everywhere. It's in the oceans. It's, it's, uh, uh, water is two 
atoms of, of hydrogen for one atom of oxygen. So if you were able to tap into the sun's reaction and turn hydrogen into helium and releasing energy into the process, you can turn this un virtually unlimited source of fuel into energy for free. And because the fusion reaction, if, if, you, if you manage to uh, get it working in the right way, you could just keep feeding hydrogen in and helium and energy come out. And helium is clean. I mean, if you, if you wanted to, you could release it into the atmosphere and it would float up into space. Um, and so this promises, in theory, um, unlimited energy with unlimited fuel and no waste. Reality is not quite as simple as that, but that is the promise. Okay, and for Spider-Man fans, uh, for those people who saw Spider-Man 2, uh, Dr. Octopus creates fusion in his laboratory in Manhattan, which is not the place to do it. But the machine looks like a little sun. It looks like actually a star. You can see uh, sunspots and solar flares on this miniature sun. However, in real life, uh, we don't expect to create a miniature sun like in Spider-Man 2. What will a fusion reactor really look like? Well, there's two main areas that uh, mainstream fusion researchers are looking at to make a, a, a real fusion reactor, and they are lasers and magnets. Uh, lasers uh, are a very clever way of getting the heat and pressure that you need to take a hydrogen pellet and make it collapse and start fusing. Basically, you shine laser light at all from all directions, and you squash a tiny pellet and as it squashes, it compresses, uh, and hopefully it ignites. And if you manage to get lasers that are strong and efficient enough uh, that you create more energy uh, out of that collapsing, fusing, tiny pellet of hydrogen than you consume by getting the lasers going in the first place, then you've got a source of energy. You've got a, uh, a fusion reactor. Um, no one has gotten that far, but it is theoretically possible. Another method is using magnets. Uh, it turns out that magnetic fields uh, affect fusing plasmas like hydrogen. And if you shape a magnetic field right, you can create a bottle with which to contain a very hot uh, cloud of hydrogen. And so uh, a magnetic donut shaped right and uh, with a cloud of hydrogen, you throw heat in, eventually you might get a fusing plasma. And once you get that reaction going, you just ha have to figure out a way of uh, piping new hydrogen in and piping uh, fused helium out, and you've got a source of energy going. Again, uh, these uh, magnetic bottles aren't working to the point where you, put, you get more energy out than you put in uh, heating the plasma and containing it. But in theory, uh, if our magnets improve and our, our knowledge improves over time, you might have a magnetic bottle that contains a miniature sun. Okay, now, because a fusion machine would use ordinary seawater, which is limitless pretty much, as the basic uh, energy source, and because the energy released is almost limitless, the number of uh, charlatans and quacks that have gone into the business is quite large. So let's talk about some of the false starts and some of the dashed hopes uh, beginning with a Dr. Richter, but the list is long. Let's talk about some of the false starts. Yes, it's, the, the, the goal is so lofty, that the unlimited energy, that the idea of fusion has attracted uh, quacks and hoaxers 
and genuine scientists who are misguided uh, from the very beginning. Um, in 1951, the world was absolutely stunned to headlines that Argentina, of all places, had solved our energy problems forever. There was an ex, a German expat named Ronald Richter who had convinced Juan Perón to fund a research laboratory on a secret island in the middle of a lake uh, to get fusion reactions going in what he called a solar thermotron. Um, and he kept the world going for about a year. People were arguing back and forth. Could he have done it? Could he not have done it? It turns out Richter was uh, barking mad. Um, he uh, would get this wild look in his eyes and dump a whole bunch of gunpowder into his experiment and blow the doors off of his laboratory in gigantic explosions and rush out and write uh, fusion on a piece of ticker tape. Um, and yet, for many, for many, many months, he kept Juan Perón's government believing that uh, he was on his way to solving the world's energy crises, and this would be a great prestige for Argentina. Uh, eventually, uh, physicists in Argentina convinced Perón that something was going on uh, that was a little fishy. They went and visited the, the laboratory with their own Geiger counters, and if, in fact, you have fusion reactions going, you should be able to detect neutron radiation coming off, and they detected nothing. So they proved that Ronald Richter was uh, perpetrating a fraud, and contemporary accounts say that he wasted between $4 million and $70 million of the Argentinian uh, treasury in the process of uh, pursuing his dream. Uh, and uh, he disappeared off the world stage very rapidly, as you can imagine. Um, but, in fact, uh, everyone who is involved in fusion some uh, form winds up deceiving themselves or deceiving others about their achievements. In 1958... Um, British scientists uh, at a very, very prestigious lab built this machine called Zeta. Uh, Zeta was a magnetic bottle of sorts, and the scientists had convinced themselves that they had gotten fusion in a laboratory. And uh, they cracked open beers. They announced to the world that they were on their way to solving the world's energy crises. Um, turns out that they were wrong, uh, that they were not seeing fusion, that they were deceiving themselves with uh, neutrons. They were seeing neutrons, but it wasn't from fusion that they wanted. Uh, so they had to humiliate themselves on the world stage. After all these tabloids say, said, uh, energy to last, last a lifetime, uh, no, no more energy bills, the British teams had to say, well, uh, not really. Okay. Now, more recently, uh, we had this huge fiasco concerning uh, two chemists, uh, Pons and Fleischmann, who grabbed world attention, uh, covers of, I think, Newsweek magazine and the New York Times, and everyone was talking about, well, did Pons and Fleischmann create fusion in a bottle? Not hot fusion, the hot fusion of lasers and magnets, but cold fusion. So tell us a little bit about cold fusion. Yes, yes. In, in 1989, two chemists, uh, one of whom was extremely well uh, uh, celebrated, made this announcement to the press that absolutely stunned the world. They claimed that where these hot fusion, this magnetic fusion, this laser fusion uh, research has been failing for years, wasting tens of billions of dollars, these two chemists uh, working independently had spent $100,000, and they had solved the problem. And what they argued was that they managed to pipe hydrogen into a chunk of metal, a palladium, 
which has the interesting property that soaks up hydrogen like a sponge. And the theory was that if you get enough hydrogen in there, uh, the hydrogen will be forced so close together that they might be forced to fuse. And in doing the research on their own, they thought they saw more energy coming out of their palladium cell than was going in. So they thought they had created a device which was creating fusion energy. Um, so as you can imagine, as soon as this was announced, it was headlines everywhere, cover of Time, cover of Newsweek, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, everywhere was talking about this for months and months and months. Um, it turned out that the scientists were deceiving themselves. Uh, there was a bit of fishiness. Uh, some data was moving back and forth. It's uncertain exactly what was going on, but it, when the cells were reproduced in better circumstances with more sophisticated equipment, it turned out that there was no excess energy, and more importantly, there were no neutrons coming out. turns out when you fuse heavy forms of hydrogen together, you expect neutrons to fly away, and neutrons are a sign of fusion. They were seeing no neutrons, and that made it pretty clear that nothing was actually happening. Now, However, yeah. it took these, these uh, it was a huge battle for, for years. It, it, uh, physicists versus chemists became a red state versus blue state thing, uh, where the liberal elite physicists on the East Coast were trying to tear down a research from chemists at the University of Utah. Uh, so it became a huge political battle that still affects the physics community on some level. Now, you can simply calculate, using the back of an envelope, the uh, neutron count that would occur if they really had fusion in a bottle, and it's sufficient to kill them. So the very fact that Pons and Fleischmann are still alive uh, means that they could not possibly have attained fusion in a bottle. But then the question is, well, what did they attain? They did get net energy coming out. That's been verified by different laboratories. Some people have gone back to the literature on palladium back in the 1800s, it turns out that a person applied for a patent for one of the first cigarette lighters. He used palladium, put it in water, and attained a net amount of energy, which he used to light a flame, and he got a patent for it, uh, a palladium uh, cigarette lighter. And some people think that that's what they discovered. Well, what are your thoughts? It's been several years since then. What did Pons and Fleischmann really have in their bottle that gave energy? Was it a cigarette lighter or, or what? It's really hard to tell. Palladium has an extraordinarily interesting chemistry. Uh, it has been fooling researchers for years, as you've, as you've noted, that not only is there that patent, uh, a number uh, in the early 20th century, two researchers uh, thought they had achieved fusion in palladium. And uh, because they, they came to, were thinking along the same lines as Pons and Fleischmann were, and they thought they detected helium inside, an excess of helium inside palladium, uh, which would be a nice sign of fusion because you're creating helium. It turns out that they were deceiving themselves because it turns out uh, palladium soaks up helium just as well as it soaks up hydrogen, so you have enriched helium. So if they were seeing excess energy, and it's not entirely clear from the setup of the experiments that they were, I mean, they certainly thought they were, there was some sloppiness, um, but it's certainly possible that they, they were seeing it. It would most likely be a a matter of chemistry, a chemical reaction where bonds are breaking, uh, rather than a nuclear reaction uh, where 
bonds in the center of a nucleus are being formed, that, that uh, uh, the nuclear bonds that change atoms into other atoms uh, are what are changed in a fusion reaction, as opposed to the attachments between atoms, which are chemical bonds, which are being changed in a chemical reaction like burning paper or, or cracking water. And so whatever they were seeing almost certainly was a chemical reaction. And chemical reactions are well studied, and there's only so much you can do for solving the world's energy uh, problems with chemical reactions. In fact, burning gasoline is an extraordinarily efficient chemical reaction that allows us to power our cars. Um, so it's not certain that there's anything there for solving the world's energy uh, problems unless you have a nuclear reaction of some sort. It's pretty clear that that is not what they saw. Now, to a physicist, it was absolutely staggering that you had these two respected chemists that didn't understand anything about the quantum theory. If you, if you bring the protons together very closely, as you mentioned, then you could attain fusion. But you have to bring them really close, uh, 10 to the minus 13 centimeters. However, in the, the Pons and Fleischmann experiment, these atoms were separated by 10 to the minus 8 centimeters, and you can simply, using a back of an envelope calculation, this is what we give our undergraduates. Our undergraduates can calculate that the fusion you get in a bottle is almost zero as a consequence. So for the physics community, what was absolutely staggering is the fact that chemists don't know any physics at all. Well, let's move on because we had a story, another apparently fraudulent story that just took place a few months ago this time at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, involving something called bubble fusion. So explain to us what is bubble fusion and how did the Nazis, of all people, first stumble onto this whole thing called sonoluminescence? Yes, uh, sonoluminescence is this really bizarre um, reaction, and it's, it's only very recently been understood, uh, where uh, basically you take sound waves, and you bombard a liquid with it, and you induce what's called cavitation. Under the right circumstances, if you hit water very hard, it actually behaves like a solid, and it can crack. And just for a tiny, tiny fraction of a second, you can cause a crack in water. And what happens when you have that crack is you create a little vacuum, and that vacuum causes water to evaporate and causes a bubble. Um, by bombarding liquids with sound waves, you cause these bubbles, and if you time those sound waves just right, you can cause those bubbles to collapse very dramatically. And uh, it was discovered that if you do this just right, you get such a dramatic collapse that you get some sort of reaction. No one quite knows exactly what it is, even today, um, that causes a little flash of blue light. So if you turn off the lights and you bombard a tub of water with sound, you can actually get tiny little lights. And it's poorly understood, but it's really cool. You've got, you've got a mechanism for compressing and heating something, and a gentleman out at Oak Ridge named Rusi Taliarkan uh, came up with a clever idea of how to get enormous bubbles by shooting neutrons into the liquid that would collapse dramatically. And his hope was that by having this dramatic collapse and heating and you might actually induce fusion in the center of the bubble. 
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, you've been listening to an interview with Professor Charles Seif of New York University. The book is called The Sun in a Bottle. And in the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about your inner fish with a leading evolutionary biologist. Once again, this is Exploration. If you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at one 800 735 That's one 800 735 for a copy of today's program. Also, be sure to check into my website. It's www.mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. So stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we brought on a professor of journalism at New York University, Professor Charles Scheif, and he's the author of a book about fusion power, because energy, of course, is going to be a big issue in the coming years and decades. And in the second half now of exploration, we're going to shift gears and talk about life on Earth. You know, it never ceases to amaze me that people have a hard time getting their head around the fact that, well, our ancestors were ape-like. Charles Darwin said that there was a common ape-like ancestor that gave birth to humans and apes. Well, in this half hour, forget about apes. We're talking about fish. That's right. We can actually trace many of the basic features of the human body all the way back to fish. And so once again, in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on Professor Neil Shubin talking about your inner fish, talking about Darwin's theory of evolution going back not just to the apes, but going all the way back to fish. And now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're very glad to have with us Professor Neil Shubin. He's a provost at the Field Museum as well as a professor of anatomy at the University of Chicago. And he has written a delightful book called Your Inner Fish, a journey into the 3.5 billionaire history of the human body. Well, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the issuing of The Origin of Species, which set off this incendiary debate concerning evolution and the origin of humanity. Some people have a hard time getting their head around the fact that we descended from a common ancestor of the ape and humans. 
And in this hour, we're going to forget about the apes. We're going to go back to the fish, back to the worms, back to the single-celled organisms that eventually gave rise to the human race. So once again, today we're going to talk about your inner fish, the fact that most of the organs of our body can be directly traced back hundreds of millions of years when our ancestors were fish. Professor Shubin, how did you, as a youth, first get interested in science and specifically evolutionary biology? When I was uh, about uh, 8 to 12 years old, that was the time of Apollo, of the Apollo rockets and, and mankind's voyage to the moon. And I was just, I remember as a child, just being glued to the television every time a rocket took off and every time a human being uh, departed Earth to go to the moon. And that struck me as just such a powerful accomplishment, but it also really um, tickled me that, you know, people can do these things, that, that with the power of our brains, we can ask powerful questions and do things that we normally wouldn't imagine are even possible. So I guess that sort of spirit of the space program of the late 60s and early 70s sort of carried with me, and even to this present day, I just, uh, uh, I have little children uh, of my own now. And whenever I see, you know, one of the Apollo rockets in a museum display or uh, a TV show uh, talking about the space program, I actually get kind of emotional because my attachment uh, to science is actually originally derived from seeing those successes uh, of, uh, of that program in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. Okay, then what made you switch toward biology and especially evolutionary biology? Yeah, it was a big switch, and I guess I went from space to the past, <laughs> you know, and, uh, uh, and I guess it happened when I was in high school, uh, late high school, and, 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 and t entering college. I get interested in the Earth history, uh, dinosaurs, uh, fish, the origin of the Earth, the origin of the moon. Our distant past became uh, fascinating to me, and I think the thing about it that was, that was, was most interesting was that we can understand our past that we can understand events that happened millions or hundreds of millions or in some cases billions of years ago. And that was really powerful. And, you know, I was very fortunate to have some great teachers. Uh, I was very fortunate to, to go to school in, uh, in cities that had great museums. And all that just, you know, really had a major impact on me. And also you were involved with a major discovery concerning the evolution of the hand. Uh, could you elaborate? Yeah, I remember I got into that part when I was in graduate school um, in the 80s, and I saw one diagram in a book that showed the transformation of a fish to a land-living creature. And when I saw that diagram, I said to myself, golly gee, that is a first-class scientific problem. How did that happen? And that became my, my quest, really, you know, for my Ph.D. dissertation and my research afterwards um, to understand that. And it became clear that to understand that, I had to find new fossils. And I began the hunt uh, in the late 80s around the world. And that hunt ultimately took us to the Canadian Arctic, where I've been working since the late 90s. And the reason why we went to the Canadian Arctic was because it has rocks of the right age and the right type, to fill that gap between fish and land-living creature, between finned animal and limbed animal. And what we found over a series of years was a beautiful creature um, that has a fin uh, which contains uh, limb bones inside of it, which give, provides important clues on how fish evolved to walk on land. And how old is that fossil? 375 million years old, we believe, plus or minus two. Mm-hmm. Okay, well... 
this year marks the 100th anniversary of the creation of Darwin's theory of evolution. And some people have a hard time getting their heads around the fact that we share a common ancestor with the apes. But in this program, we're going to forget about the apes. We're going to talk about fish. In fact, even going beyond fish, we're going to talk about worms and some of the original predecessors of the human race. So let's begin with the basics. First of all, even kids know that we're made out of DNA, which has a blueprint for the makeup of our bodies. What is the percent of overlap between us and our nearest neighbor, the chimpanzee, and for that matter, between us and the fish? Well, by, it, by depending on how you measure it, you can make the case that we're about, our DNA is about 99% similar to a chimpanzee. And it depends on which parts of DNA you measure or, or how you do that. But regardless of how you do it, in many ways, we're almost genetically identical to chimps. You can begin to take a comparison and look, okay, well, how similar are we to lizards and fish and worms and other things? And as you do that, what you begin to find is, we're pretty similar to those creatures as well. You know, the, the number for a fish is somewhere around 70% uh, similar, even higher in some cases, depending on which genes you, you, you look at. In fact, here's an amazing uh, uh, point. If you look at some genes, particularly those pieces of DNA that are involved in the development of our skeleton, it turns out portions of the, that DNA is almost identical to that we see in fish and sharks doing very similar things. So when you look at our genetic similarities, it's almost like peeling an onion. What you first see are the, are the real serious similarities we have with things like chimpanzees. Then as you go deeper, you start to see similarities uh, we have with fish, uh, with worms, uh, jellyfish, and even microbes. And I understand that we are roughly 30% equivalent to yeast, uh, a single-celled organism, right? Absolutely. In fact, much of the machinery... That, that controls our cells and how they work and how they divide and, and how they you know, use energy, uh, those things can be traced almost identically uh, to, to, to yeast. I mean, here's an amazing thing. I mean, we all take it for granted about the Nobel Prize in medicine or physiology. But if you look at the scientists in medicine or physiology who won the Nobel Prize, these are people working on yeast, or on sea urchins, or on flies, and on worms. I mean, that says something very powerful, that by studying these creatures, we can provide tools for human health. And isn't it also true that uh, because DNA changes slowly over time, that we can actually use DNA as a clock to tell more or less when we shared a common ancestor? Isn't that right, that DNA in some sense is a clock? Absolutely. It's an incredibly powerful tool because now we can use the DNA and compare say, a human to any other creature in, in the world, by looking at their DNA, we can come up with an estimate uh, of how long they've been uh, separated in an evolutionary sense. What's their common history? It's a really remarkable tool because where it has some really powerful impacts is in understanding major events in human history, uh, migrations of human populations over time. But even more significantly, it can tell us a lot about you know, the shared history we have with everything from fish to worms to flies and so forth. Okay, well, let's get right to the heart of your book where we talk about your inner fish. Uh, let's talk about the hand that you mentioned before. Isn't there more or less a one-to-one -one correspondence between the basic structure of the human hand and the amphibians and the fish? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. If you look at the skeleton of a human arm all the way out, and a leg for that matter, you have one bone in the upper arm or upper leg. You have two bones in the, in the forearm or foreleg. 
then you have wrist or ankle bones, and then you have the rays or digits. You know, so it's this one bone, two bones, wrist or ankle bones, then digits or fingers or toes. And we can look and say, well, let's compare that skeleton across the animal kingdom. And what do we see? Everything that has an appendage, whether it's a bird that flies, a bat that flies, a whale that swims, or a horse, or a lizard, or what have you, has that one bone, two bone, many bones, digits, uh, fingers and toes pattern. It's really remarkable. So my quest, when you know, as a, beginning as a paleontologist, was to understand, well, how did that pattern uh, evolve from fish? And that was the interesting thing, is that when we look at fish of the right age, of around 375-ish million years old, what we begin to see is that one bone, two bone, many bone pattern is actually seen in fish fins first. We're beginning to see that that sort of fundamental pattern that characterizes all appendages, all limbs, uh, is, is originally set up in fish living in water. Now, when Darwin came out with his theory of evolution, he was criticized from all angles. People were saying, well, where are the so-called missing links that link uh, different organisms, specifically the whale? Here is a mammal. It has, is warm-blooded. It bears its young live, not in eggs. And people were saying, well, where did the whale come from? So let's talk about the bone structure of whales. What relationship do the fins of a whale have with us? Yeah, so if you look at a whale and you compare it on one side to a human and on one side, say, to a shark, okay, and you strip it of its skin and you look inside at the skeleton, what you see is the flipper of a whale has, guess what, has the one bone, two bone, wrist bone digit pattern. That is, the pattern of bones inside the flipper of a whale is almost identical to that seen in our own arm. That's really remarkable. And the difference between a whale flipper and a human arm and hand is not the, the pattern of those bones, but it's their size and shape. They've, they've changed in size and shape to make a flat, broad paddle that, that the, the whale uses in swimming. And this sort of relationship between whales and other mammals like us is seen in the flippers, it's seen in the structure of the head, in the backbones, just across the animal. And so they're much more similar to us uh, than they are to, say, sharks uh, and fish. So just by understanding their anatomy, you would say, well, golly, you know, if you would predict, as any scientist would make a prediction, you would predict that if you look at rocks of the right age, that you would find links between whales and, and, and mammals to show how they evolved uh, from land-living creatures that actually returned to the sea. And that's exactly what happened. A series of colleagues um, made that prediction, and back in the, in the 90s, went to rocks of the right age and uncovered uh, evidence of, uh, of fossils, fossil mammals, that evolved uh, to, to live in the water. And these connect, uh, in an evolutionary sense, whales to four-legged uh, mammals that live, live on land. And if you were to take a look at the skeleton of dolphins and whales and look at the hind legs, well, there are no hind legs, but aren't there vestigial bones, uh, leftover bones there that aren't connected to anything that are leftovers from long time ago, the fact that they had uh, legs? Yeah, that's really amazing. Because actually, if you look very carefully, what you'll find is that these uh, that live some, some living uh, whales and dolphins actually have a small bone that compares uh, to a pelvis. They actually have small rudimentary uh, hind limbs. And if you look at the fossil record, what we begin to see is that as we trace the history of whales, 
we can trace them to ancestors that actually had hind limbs. So we can trace this whole pattern of the evolution of whales from four-legged animals that live on land to animals that are adapting to live in the water that are developing flipper-like appendages and are losing uh, the hind limbs. We can trace that series very beautifully uh, in the fossil record. So in other words, the so-called missing link that uh, Darwin didn't have we're beginning to piece together the mammal-like creature, I guess it resembled a dog of some sort, that eventually went back into the oceans, right? Absolutely. We're seeing that, and we're seeing, like, in, in many other examples, in the cases of, of, uh, of birds, we're finding links between them and dinosaurs. So it's, it's a really remarkable time to be a paleontologist. Okay, so we talked about body structure. We talked about the, uh, the hands. Let's talk about wings. Bats have wings. But if you compare the wings of bats to the hand and the wings of birds, what's the difference? Yeah, bats fly with really long fingers. So remember that one bone, two bone, little bone finger pattern I said that we see in our skeleton? Mm -hmm. Well, you see it in a bat as well. The difference between a bat and a human mostly is in the size and shape of the bones. And much of the wing of a bat is formed by really, really elongate uh, fingers that have a, a membrane between them. It's truly fascinating. And we can actually trace this to uh, their development uh, from embryo uh, to an adult. That is, they begin with an appendage with one bone, two bones, little bones, and fingers. And those fingers rapidly um, uh, develop in, in length. They grow very fast. And we can actually trace this shift to the action of certain pieces of DNA that control that, you know, elongate, that, that rapid growth. Uh, that's present in, in bats, but not as active uh, in humans. Okay. Now, if the body structure is such that you could sort of trace the evolutionary tree of how organisms gave birth to other organisms, that should also be encoded in the DNA sequence as well. So there's something called the Hox genes. So tell us a little bit about Hox genes and how they are, in some sense, a blueprint for the basic body shape, not only of fish and humans, but also insects. If you look at animals, they exist in three dimensions. They have a front and a back, a left and a right, a belly side and a back side. And all animals have a body architecture where organs lie in the right place. You know, so a human has four sets of appendages, you know, arms and legs, and they are in the right place on the body. A fly has appendages. It has wings and antennae and, and legs and so forth. And these are in the right place in their body. One of the remarkable discoveries of, of, of molecular biology, of DNA technology in the 80s and 90s, was the uncovering of the genetic machinery that builds that body architecture. People started to find genes that control the position of organs on the body. They'd find mutants of flies, uh, which have a leg where an antenna should be. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And by deciphering these odd mutants, what they uncovered was the toolkit that, that controls the basic architecture of the body. And so they, you know, this is in flies. They're working on flies, and they're seeing this toolkit, that, and it was a really fascinating discovery. But then the truly remarkable thing happened when they began to find that these same genes that control the basic architecture of the body in flies are present in mice, humans, fish, and other creatures. So the basic toolkit that builds the body architecture is very, very ancient, and it's seen in everything from flies to worms uh, to fish to reptiles uh, to humans. Just a power, powerful tool to understand our bodies and its history. 
Now, if you take a look at insects and humans, uh, we have a head, a middle, and we have extremities and legs. Uh, as I understand, the Hox genes on the chromosomes are physically laid out in more or less the same pattern. So in some sense, isn't it true that we have a mirror image of our basic body structure encoded linearly on a strand of molecules called the chromosome? Absolutely, and you can see it most clearly in these genes, these Hox genes, where the genes that are involved in the uh, formation of structures in the front of the body, they lie on one side of the chromosome. The genes that uh, form the, 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 the structures on the back end of the body are on the other end of the chromosome. So they form this linear sequence, which people believe is uh, related to their activity. Their, their timing of their activity is very important. Uh, and that relates to their position in the embryo. So all this is related. So deep structure of the chromosome is related to fundamental structure of the body in these, in these particular genes. Now, when people are in high school, they learn about how we are conceived and how the embryo grows. And uh, some students in high school observe the fact that the embryo seems to have gills during one phase of their development. And there is something called uh, phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny. I think that's how it goes. So is it true or is it not true that the fact that the embryo has gills, or what seems to be gills, mimics our early evolution when we, our ancestors were fish and they had gills? Yeah, we share a very, very common pattern with other creatures. So if you look at a human embryo, um, say a few weeks after conception, what you have is a series of swellings in the front of the head area. And these swellings contain cells. And in us, the cells in these swellings form parts of our jaw, parts of our ear, voice box, and so forth. Um, you can look at a shark or a fish, and after, con after you know, in the egg, after conception of these things, what you find is uh, these same swellings exist, and we can trace what those cells do. And in, in fish, they become much of the apparatus uh, that supports and controls the gills. So what you see is in the embryo are often major roadmaps to our past. Now, this is a little bit different, though, than the sort of what people might learn in school, the ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny idea, the notion that we track our evolutionary history um, as we develop from egg to adult. The reality is a lot more powerful, but a little bit more subtle in some sense, and that is the idea is we, can, we have in our early development very profound similarities to other creatures, and as we develop, we gain differences to those creatures, which is another old idea. But this is the idea that really we begin at a very common place and then gain our differences as, 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 we, as we develop either in the egg or, or in the womb. And we can see this in the embryos and the genes and, anatomy, and the structures of the anatomy and so forth. Now, if you go back in history and read some of the writings of Sir Isaac Newton, who lived in the 1600s, he would uh, take walks around Cambridge and he would notice that, well, Every animal he saw had a basic structure, a bilateral symmetry. There was a left side and a right side. And no matter where he looked, uh, birds, snakes, bugs, he saw this basic bilateral symmetry. And he wrote in his memoirs that he didn't know where it came from, but wasn't it odd? Now, how far back does that go? Do you have to go back all the way to the Cambrian era, half a billion years ago, when did this basic left-right symmetry evolve? We can actually go back even further than that. I mean, you, what you find is that animals have a, a body axis. There's, a, there's an axis to bodies, whether it's front or back or top and bottom, in things like a jellyfish. 
uh, which don't have a body plan that's much like ours, yet they exist in these dimensions. And so we actually see probably evidence, uh, we see definitely evidence of the first bodies with a body architecture like you're talking about during the Cambrian, the early Cambrian, uh, over 520, 530 million years ago. But we know actually from a study of genetics and a few fossils that, that creatures like with bodies that have a, um, a front and a back uh, existed before then. Uh, because what we're seeing as we apply DNA technology to creatures that don't appear to have a body axis, we find they already have the genes to make that body axis. So what I'm saying is, is that Newton's observation um, uh, would have, uh, is, is even more profound, that it goes back to creatures which, uh, which are extraordinarily ancient. Uh, and we're seeing it with new tools. We're not only seeing it with fossils, but with, uh, with molecular biology, DNA technology. Okay, well, take it back to your book. Uh, you talk not just about the hand, but different other organs of the body, including teeth, the stomach, uh, the eye, uh, the ear. Uh, well, let's take a few of them. Uh, first of all, the eye. Uh, it was once thought that the eye evolved many times simultaneously or at different times along the evolutionary tree, but I guess now people believe that the eye basically evolved just once, the basic gene. But what's the latest concerning the eye? Yeah, the last thing with the eye is basically that the genetic toolkit that makes eyes uh, evolved very early, very ancient. And in fact, you know, we can trace the, um, the molecular tools that build eyes uh, to very ancient creatures, to that Cambrian explosion, to the Cambrian era that we were talking about earlier. Now, the toolkit that builds eyes has been around for a long period of time. Certain different kinds of eyes may have evolved independently, however, though not as many as 15 times, a much smaller number of times. But each time that happened, it came about through this common toolkit. So the idea is that um, you have a common toolkit to build things, and creatures during, sometimes during their independent evolution hit on the same solution because they're using the same tools. It's like if you give a, an architect uh, and a builder uh, the same kind of wood, the same nails, you know, and the same physical constraints, uh, there's a very good odds that they're going to end up with similar kinds of houses. And so I think that kind of analogy is fitting to where the field is going now. In fact, in our physics department, we actually have some physicists looking at rhodopsin and uh, chemicals that are sensitive to light. And that's believed that that's how the first eyeball evolved. A patch exactly. Of and those things can trace, you know, some, of, some aspects of our eyes can actually trace to single-celled microbes, right? Mm -hmm. the, 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 the pigments that, uh, and the molecules that convey signals from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell, some of these that become photoreceptive, these are ancient indeed. I mean, and go back, you know, on the order of a billion years or more rather than, uh, rather than even younger. Okay, and moving on, what about the stomach? Uh, what do we share with the fish concerning our digestive tract? Well, you know, what is, what's interesting is, you know, if you, if you look inside a shark and if you look inside a human, um, they, we, we, they both have digestive tracts, but they're subdivided in different ways. What's interesting here is even though the organs may sometimes look very different, the, um, there's a common pattern, that is there's a regionality to the, to the gut tube that exists in a shark and a human uh, that is very ancient indeed. There's a foregut area, there's a midgut area, and there's a hindgut area. And it turns out that many of the genetic controls that appear to control these, um, the development of these regions are shared among many different creatures. So again, while we may not look very similar to these creatures, when we look at the fundamentals, um, that is their, their basic structure, and the, the molecules that actually are involved in, in forming that basic structure, we see the deep simil deepest similarities. 
And I read once that there's a peculiarity of the human body, the fact that our digestive tract and our respiratory tract sort of merge in our throat, and that's why people choke. Uh, when they swallow something, it goes down, quote, the wrong pipe, and their, their windpipe is cut off. And I understand that the blame for that the blame for that goes back several hundred million years, uh, back to the fish, right, or back well, to amphibians. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think when you, you know, when you look at a human, you know, with the viewpoint of fish. So I'm a fish biologist, a fish paleontologist who studies humans, you know, when I teach the human anatomy and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, what a human looks like to me is a jury-rigged fish. It's basically, we are very exceptional uh, creatures in many ways. We talk. Uh, we uh, have fine manipulation of our hands. We have large brains and complex societies and so forth. Yet we're doing all of these amazing things that humans can do and can achieve with structures that originally appeared in creatures like worms and fish and so forth. I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our first special guest was Professor Charles Seif of NYU, author of the book Sun in a Bottle. And the second special guest was Dr. Neil Shubin, author of the book Your Inner Fish. Also, I'd like to say that my book, Physics of the Impossible, is now coming out in paperback. So once again, Physics of the Impossible, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for five weeks running last year, is now available in paperback form. Also, if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230 for a copy of today's program. This is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration. Exploration.